a Wednesday evening. Let's, let's go back to our 7 o'clock schedule. Now that the days are getting shorter, uh, we tend to do it 7.30 in the summer, but uh, let's go back to 7 o'clock. So 7 o'clock here Wednesday night for a, a Bible study. I'm going to depart from the series I started during the feast on the Psalms today for an express purpose. Uh, You'll remember at the feast, uh, I guess it was two years ago now, we discussed uh, the third tithe situation and the situation that we've had in the church in this modern era, the end time church of God, and that was that uh, it was figured from either the nearest feast or the nearest feast to your baptism, whether it was spring or fall, was the way they figured that. That is not the way it was laid out in the Old Testament. So we determined, after discussing the Old Testament Scriptures, that it would be good to adjust it, so we were all doing it together. And in a sense, we have come into the land in that God, I think, blessed us with this place, and many of us moved from all over the country here to form a little village or town, as some scriptures seem to indicate needed to be done. So uh, we decided at that time to adjust it so we would all do it together, and it comes up that this feast is the beginning point of the uh, third tithe year the first in a seven-year cycle, as we have best determined what we can. Now, third tithe in itself has been a difficulty in the church of God in terms of how was it uh, administered, how do you go about it, what is done, and abuses occurred because... Uh, Pasadena was uh, overseeing it and administrating it, and as a result, some things got out of whack. Uh, it, was, it is, as we shall see shortly, there for the widow, the orphan, the stranger within the gate, and the Levite. And yet it seems that in that administration, it came to the point the Levite got a bigger share than the widow and the orphan. Uh, that is abusive, and it was wrong. And I remember seeing, and I remember getting directions from headquarters back in the 60s and 70s where they would tell us to put the widows and the orphans in very budget motels and give them a bare minimum of assistance for the feast. Well, that would have been second tithe more. But even on their monthly budgets, they were to be uh, treated abstemiously, uh, and yet... In Pasadena, the third tithe was used more liberally, let's say, for the ministers, especially those evangelists and and, uh, leader, those in the higher leadership positions in the church. It was even rumored that certain one or ones uh, flew the jet to Reno or wherever for gambling and girls on third tithe. I don't know whether that's really true or not, but those were alleged. And some of those things indeed did happen. I don't know whether it was with third tithe or not. So, there were terrible abuses. And let's turn to Malachi just for a moment, because uh, this is a book where God shows displeasure in the end-time 
ministry, and very definitely so. And it had a lot to do with the use and handling of money and of offerings and so on and polluted bread on the altar. But I want to turn to chapter 3 and down to verse 5. Uh, because he's summarizing some things here. Uh, he got on us about tithes and not tithing properly. Uh, as one real, when they ask, well, what's wrong? That was an example he used. But coming down to verse 5, I want to make this point. I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against adulterers and against false swearers, and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear not me, says the Eternal of hosts. For I am the Eternal, I change not. Therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. He's still patient, he's still merciful in spite of those things that have been done wrong. But here he issues an indictment against those who would oppress those who are more vulnerable in society, specifically a hireling, widow, uh, orphan, and a stranger within your gates. Now that is repeated in quite a few different scriptures throughout the prophecies and through the Bible, that God has a special care for widows and orphans and those who are less fortunate or have difficulties uh, in life because of their situation. So they are to be carefully taken care of, and instead it went somewhat the other way. Now, <clears throat> we looked at a lot of scriptures uh, at the beginnings of this group, and I looked at them from the viewpoint uh, that Frank Nelty had presented to me, uh, that would do it differently. So I want to go back to uh, some scriptures in the Old Testament and review what we actually already looked at a couple years ago. But I want to review that and see uh, how it fits what we're doing. Let's go uh, to Leviticus 25, first of all, because it kind of lays out for us here God's cycle, the way He has set up the financial situation to prevent poverty, to keep families solvent. Uh, and this is when they came into the land. When you come into the land, chapter 25, verse 2, which I give you, then shall the land keep a Sabbath to the eternal. Six years you shall show, sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest to the land, a Sabbath for the eternal. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard, and that which grows of its own accord of your harvest you shall not reap, neither gather the grapes of your vine undressed, for it is a year of rest to the land. And the Sabbath of the land shall be food for you, for you and for your servant, for your maid, your hired servant, for the stranger that sojourns with you, so your entire household. And for your cattle and for the beasts that are in your land shall all the increase thereof be food. And then he takes it a step further and says, You shall number seven Sabbaths of years, seven times seven years, or forty-nine years. Uh, then shall you cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the 
seventh month, which we just read on atonement. In the day of atonement shall you make the trumpet sound throughout your land, and hallow the fiftieth year, and proclaim liberty throughout all the land of the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee to you, and you shall return every man to his possession, and return every man to his family. Uh, jubilee shall that fiftieth year be to you. You'll not sow, nor reap, nor gather that which grows of itself, and so on. Uh, a year of liberty, if you will. So we go through a cycle of 50 years. Now that cycle essentially has been lost in terms of, of uh, God counting it and from when. And I think he did that on purpose so that we would not know uh, when the 6,000 years is completely up. No one knows the day of creation. The Jews claim to. And others have come up with their own interpretations, but there is nothing to corroborate when creation actually occurred. And there is even a certain amount of question about Christ's death, 31 or 33. Uh, our scholars in the church determined that it was very most likely in 31 A.D. <clears throat> but that is not absolutely written in stone. So God has... Uh, obscured those things to some degree for his own purposes. So what we did was tried to figure out from what we could find in Ezekiel and other places, and I look at a lot of people's papers, uh, that perhaps the Jubilee year will be 2026 or 2027 coming up. So we try to get in line with that in terms of our seven-year sequence. Well, we don't know that for sure, but you have to act on the best knowledge you have and do the best you can. Uh, so we decided to all get in the same sequence, okay? And have our third tithe year at the same time. And the way that was set up was the third year of seven and the sixth year of seven were the third year. Let's go on down and, and see that here in the context. Again, it says in verse 17, You shall not therefore oppress one another, you shall fear your God, for I am the eternal your God. Keep his statutes, and so on. Verse 20, And if you shall say, What shall we eat the seventh year? Behold, we shall not sow, nor gather in our increase. Then I will command my blessing upon you in the sixth year, and it shall bring forth fruit for three years. And you shall sow the eighth year, and eat yet of old fruit until the ninth year. Until her fruits come in, you shall eat of the old store. And the land shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. So the way he set that up was land could be leased for up to 49 years. It could not be sold. That was because when they went into the land, the land was divided among the tribes and among the families in the tribes. And in any society, you're going to have people who are Good managers, careful managers, who will increase what they have, will farm well, will prosper, and they will tend to grow financially. And then you have those who, for various reasons, do not and seem to lose ground. Perhaps they're not good managers or they've not been taught well or whatever, and they have difficulty uh, surviving. That has always been and perhaps always shall be, because he even said uh, somewhere here in Leviticus or Deuteronomy, you will always have the poor among you. So 
yeah, there are societal things and various impacts that come upon us financially. Right now, high unemployment's one. You know, there, there are various things that, that can reconfigure. But God set up a system whereby at the beginning of the 50th year, or in the 50th year at least, all land would go back to the original family. And then if somebody mismanaged in the next 50 years uh, and lost their land or leased it out to someone else because they, for whatever reason, weren't uh, prospering, uh, they could only lease it for the amount of time left in the 50-year cycle. If it was in the fifth year they went broke, they could lease it out for 45 or 44. If it was the 30th, then it was... Uh, only 19 years you had left, you could lease it out. Or if you went broke in the 48th year, you got your land back in the 50th year anyway. Well, that's the way he set it up so that it would return and the next generation would not suffer because of what those in the previous generation had done. They would get their land back. So God set up a very equitable system. And I'm sure that this system will be used in the millennium, again, when Israel is returned to her land. Uh, we are still under the requirements of the tithing system, as we see in the Old Testament. And then we can corroborate some things in the New Testament. Uh, Leviticus 27, while we're here in the neighborhood, I want, uh, oh, verse 30. And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the eternal's. It is holy to the eternal. And if a man will at all redeem anything of his tithes, he shall add thereto the fifth part thereof. And concerning the tithe of the herd of the flock, even of whatsoever passes under the rod, the tenth shall be holy to the eternal. And you're not to search it, whether it be good or bad or whatever. Uh, we have always said, and I, I think it is right in terms of of uh, finances from crops or from labor or whatever. The first tenth belongs to God. He's first, and then he allows us to keep nine. But when it came to animals, you didn't give God the first one. I think this is an important point to consider. You gave him the tenth one. You passed them under the rod and counted them. If you had a hundred, then every tenth one belonged to God. Now, I would presume that if you did not have ten, you kept the first nine. And if you had more than ten, the tenth one was God's, and the twentieth one was God's, and the thirtieth, and the fortieth, and so on. But if you had less than ten, that meant you were essentially probably a poorer person, and God did not require the first lamb or goat or, or bullock, but the tenth one. So he was being merciful in that way. Now, Numbers 18, just to establish a little bit here, verse 21, uh, he says, And behold, Numbers 18, 21, I have given the children of Levi all the tenth in Israel for an inheritance. Uh, for their service, which they serve, even the service of the tabernacle of the congregation. 
Let's see. The Levites, verse 23, shall do the service of the tabernacle. They shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a statute forever. Verse 24, the tithes of the children of Israel, which they offer as an heave offering to the eternal, I have given to the Levites to inherit. Therefore, I have said to them, among the children of Israel, they shall have no inheritance. Uh, it goes on to say, let's see down here, verse 31. No, that's not what I was looking at. Is, that the, is this the place that it has it? I'm not... 21 to 26. Oh, the tenth part of the tithe in verse 26 is what I was looking at. There's a place, I don't, my head doesn't fall on it here, but it's, it's in here somewhere, where it's... Uh, uh, okay, when you take up of the, of the children of Israel the tithes which I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall offer up an heave offering of it for the eternal, even a tenth part of your tithe. That was to be given to, uh, to Aaron. There's a place that it says that. I don't see it here. Oh, it's in Nehemiah. No, it's back here somewhere. Anyway, it says that they were to give 10% went to the priesthood, and then a tithe of that, or 10% of that, went to uh, the high priest, Aaron. So God set it up so that the Levites were to take care of the spiritual needs, and they were to receive those tithes and use them for a living and so on. And that's the way he set it up. 18. Is it 28? I knew it ought to be here somewhere. Thus you shall offer an heave offering to the eternal of all your tithes, which you receive of the children of Israel, and you shall give there of the Lord's heave offering to Aaron the priest. Okay, yeah, that's, I think there's one more place that mentions that, but that says it. Anyway, I'm not going to go through all these scriptures on first tithe. It says you were to give that to the Levite we just read. Second tithe, it says you were to keep and take it to the place that God set his name uh, and keep the feast with it. So it, it's, we call it first, second, and third simply for ease of reference. We could call it ABC. We could call it the Levitical tithe. We could call it the feast tithe. And we could call it the widow's tithe, for instance instead of one, two, and three. Uh, the Bible doesn't say first, second, and third, but it, it delineates these by use is what it does. And the fact that it says you give it all to the Levite, and then it says take it to the feast, and then it says give it to the widow, uh, shows that it's talking about different ones. And that is indeed the way that it was set up. You can look into some of the Jewish history, and they saved third tithe on the third and the sixth year of the seven-year cycle. Uh, and it had to last. Now let's go down to Deuteronomy 12. Well, first of all, 14. Deuteronomy 14. Let's go there first. Now it talks about the second tithe up here beginning in verse about 22. You tie the increase of your seed that it brings forth year by year. So this tithe that is speaking of here is something that is done every year, year by year. You shall eat before the eternal your God in the place which he shall choose to place his name there, the tithe of your corn, of your wine, your oil, your firstlings, of your herds, and your flocks, that you may be learn to fear the eternal always. Then it says, if the way be too long for you, uh, 
They might be living a long way from Jerusalem uh, so that you're not able to carry it. Or if the place be too far from you, which the eternal your God shall choose to set his name there, when the eternal your God has blessed you, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money and go to the place he chooses. Now, there are many scriptures, I won't go there, which show that he, out of all the tribes, chose Jerusalem. Now, this is an interesting thought. Uh, jot this down, would you, uh, Gordon or someone? Uh, how could the way be too long for you if Israel, Palestine today, was the promised land? It really isn't that big. Now, if the promised land were an entire continent, uh, then the way to go there three times a year might be too far for you. But you could walk or take mules or donkeys or horses or wagons from anywhere in that area over there and fairly easily get to Jerusalem because it was kind of central. Just a, just a thought that crossed my mind that could be explored and, and put some numbers to the distances and so on. And then he says, bestow it for whatever your soul desires. Lust is not really right. Lust being a wrong uh, emotion, but desires here is better uh, for sheep and wine and strong drink and so on. You shall rejoice, you and your household, and the Levite that is within your gates. You shall not forsake him. Now, notice it said within your gates. Uh, we can come back to this a little later. It says he has no partner inheritance with you. They were to live off the tithe of, of others. Uh, so that second tithe. Now, that was year by year, we saw. Now, verse 28 changes the subject. At the end of three years, you shall bring forth all the tithe of your increase the same year and shall lay it up within your gates. Now, the previous tithe, it says you take to the feast and use there. This is to be laid up within your gates. And the Levite, because he has no partner inheritance with you, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow, which are within your gates, shall come and shall eat and be satisfied, that the eternal your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. Then it talks about the year of release and so on, the seventh year in the next chapter again. Let's go to Deuteronomy 26, and then I'll have some comments about some of this. Deuteronomy 26, beginning in about verse 10. And now, behold, I have brought the firstfruits of the land, which, eternal, which you, O Eternal, have given me, and you shall set it before the Eternal your God, and worship before the Eternal your God. And you shall rejoice in every good thing which the Eternal your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the stranger that is among you. And when you have made an end of tithing all the tithes of your increase the third year, which is the year of tithing. Now, that is a year of a special tithe because the other, remember, was year by year. So this is a specific year of tithing for a different purpose. And have given it to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that they may eat within your gates and be filled. So it's, uh, it's earmarked for a certain group of people. And it really should not be used for anything but what God says it should be used for. Then you shall say before the Eternal your God, after you've kept the third tithe year, 
I have brought away the hallowed things out of my house, and also have given them to the Levite, to the stranger, to the fatherless, and to the widow, according to all your commandments which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed your commandments, neither have I forgotten them. I have not eaten thereof in my mourning. In other words, if I was feeling poor and needed the money for the car insurance or whatever, or was here it's in terms of eating, uh, I didn't borrow of it, I didn't take from it, I didn't eat thereof in my mourning or my sorrow or my need. Neither have I taken away anything thereof for any unclean use. I've used it only for that which you designated. Nor given anything for the dead, whatever that means. But I have hearkened to the voice of the Eternal my God, and have done according to all that you have commanded me. So this is something we can do after we have kept the third tithe. I think we did this more personally in the past, because it was says you can ask a blessing of God after you've kept the third tithe year. But he doesn't say, it doesn't, it's, it's kind of like my Father in heaven and our Father in heaven. Notice how he addresses it in verse 15. I've done all you commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the land which you have given us as you swore unto our fathers, a land that flows with milk and honey. So we don't ask an individual blessing having kept it individually, but we ask a blessing on all Israel. There again, we're a family. We're here to work together, help one another, and then be blessed together. So we don't ask for my blessing for me. We ask for God's blessing on all of us. And I think there's another good reason for us all doing it together, just as ancient Israel was supposed to, do it together, and then collectively go to God together and ask for His blessing. And I think next feast, if we have done as we have set our hand to do and do as God asks us, that maybe collectively we ought to have a prayer at the feast and ask that as well, together. Uh, it builds unity, it builds harmony, and as we do something together, it's easier to do. Uh, Amos, I want to hit just briefly here, Amos 4, just a comment about the third tithe. Amos 4, uh, verse 4, Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal multiply your transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes after three years. So he mentions third tithe there in Amos in passing when he's talking about something. But it shows that there again it was the third year that that was done as opposed to all our increase every year as our first tithe and our uh, second tithe that we use to keep the feast or the festival tithe. Now, <clears throat> I think we should address the circumstance because we set this up, and this was it, it, Frank Nelty suggested this to me, and I thought he was probably on the right track. Uh, instead of sending it all to Pasadena, as we once did, through the year, depending on whatever year our third tithe what year was, 
he said, well, we should go back to the original Old Testament teaching, and each family should lay up the third tithe within their gates, and then distribute it themselves to the widow and the orphan and, and the stranger and the Levite and so on. Uh, and I thought, well, yeah, that makes sense. That's the way God set the thing up. But there is a bit of a problem that has arisen, uh, and that is confusion. I have been asked many times over the last, I don't know how long it's been since we did this, seven, eight, nine, ten years, uh, what, what do I do with it? Who's eligible? Who is in need? And I'm always a little bum-fuzzled because I don't know who is given what to whom. I don't know who, you know, it, it may have been someone was getting 90% of everybody's and somebody was getting 10% of it. And somebody who didn't really have a need might be given it just because people got their check and they wanted to disperse it. They wanted to, they didn't want to have to take care of it. They wanted to go ahead and, and uh, give it to someone so they didn't have to worry about it. And so they might not borrow from it or whatever later. So they were looking around, where do I take this? What do I do with it? And if they'd asked me, I'd say, well, I don't know who's given what to who. How can I say? So it became a nightmare in that sense. And some people started using it for friends and relatives, I guess, out in the world uh, or wherever they thought that they might could justify sending it. So it became a bit of a problem. Now, 1 Corinthians 14.33 says that God is not the author of confusion. So if something is confusing and frustrating, is there perhaps an administrative problem in some way? Now, let's understand that when they went into the land, as I said before, each family was given a certain amount of land within the tribe that he was of. So it was, in that sense, an estate. It was a large tract of land. And within that tract of land, you had the whole family, in-laws, out-laws, step-laws, and everything else probably, uh, large families with lots of children, perhaps a generation, another generation, another generation of people, three or four generations living on the same land. They also had servants, they also had strangers who came, and on a large tract of land like that, with a large family, they had their own Levite, who lived on the land and took care of the spiritual needs of that family. So you're looking at an extended family where you had perhaps the patriarch, uh, great-grandfather, and the grandfather, and the father, and the children, and there, someone was appointed to take care of all those things within those gates. So it was limited. You didn't save it for the guy in the next gate, however large the acreage was, but each family took care within that gate. Now, we do not have that situation today in the same way. So, I think Frank was right uh, in one sense that we should try to do it as much as we can according to the original intent that is given and within that principle. But, 
if we try to do it that way, and then we run into administrative problems and confusion, uh, what do we do? And I think there is where we perhaps need to turn to the New Testament to see if it sheds some light on it because the situation was different in the New Testament. And indeed, some changes were made from what was given in the original when they were in the land and how they were to handle certain things. And I want to go to Hebrews 7 to show a major change in the administration of the whole financial system. And I think here we might begin to find some of the answers to the quandary that you and I have had. Uh, It's frustrated and confused some of you because you didn't really know what to do and how to handle it and so on. So let's pick it up in Hebrews 7. This whole book, of course, is about Christ and how he was the Melchizedek of the Old Testament because the, and he wrote this to the Hebrews, some in the church, perhaps, who still didn't fully understand, and perhaps also to those who were Jew by nature but were not converted. But it's all about Christ and his high priesthood and everything to do with him. Uh, And he addresses this here in chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning for the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, I won't go into proving that Christ was Melchizedek, but the whole chapter here, I mean the whole book, is about Christ and brings in the Melchizedek priesthood and does prove it itself. So, he said, To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Christ holds all those offices and did back then, and Abraham gave... Christ, 10%. Now, they had a more personal relationship at that time than we do now. Sometimes people adopt this idea that Christ sits on their shoulder and Jesus tells them everything to do through the day. And that is biblically incorrect and cannot be and does not happen. He told the disciples, apostles, as he was leaving, I will not speak much with you henceforth. It says, the time that I will speak with you will be few and far between, in other words. He did come and teach Paul specifically for three and a half years, but there is very, very little evidence of that kind of personal relationship that a lot of people think they should have with God. But back then, Abraham had a a closer relationship And it shows that this Melchizedek was without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abides a priest continually. Now, he was not a son. He was a God being with the Father, not created, no descent or anything else. But when he came to the earth, he came in the office of a son, born of the Holy Spirit, and the Virgin Mary. And he abides a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. Now this is, this is uh, underlining and underscoring and explaining the office of Christ, essentially. But there's a side benefit here we can uh, 
can benefit from in terms of tithing understanding. So Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils to Melchizedek. And verily, verse 5, they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they came out of the loins of Abraham. So he's reiterating the things we just read in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that that command, that uh, allowance and command was given in the law. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. And here men that die receive tithes. So he said it's not, it wasn't just Melchizedek, but later on when the Levitical priesthood was established, the Levites were to take them. And men who die are to receive them. But there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. So he said it went from Christ to the Levites. And as I may so say, Levi also, who received tithes, paid tithes in Abraham, for he was in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So he's saying this is all tied together. Uh, you're, if you're of the lineage of Abraham, you're the lineage of, where, of anyone back there in this scenario, then you were required just like they were. Verse 11, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical, the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? Now, what he's saying here is that Melchizedek was there, and then the Levitical priesthood came along, but now we're dealing with Christ directly again in the New Testament. He'll explain this. He's after the order of Melchizedek and not after the order of Aaron. So who came first, Aaron or Melchizedek? Well, Melchizedek was Christ, and he was there a long time before Aaron the high priest. And Aaron the high priest is not in charge now. Christ is. For the priesthood, being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. Now, we're speaking here of the law of tithing. That's the whole uh, subject. Now, he doesn't say that it's done away. He says it's a change in the law, a change in the administration, if you will. For he of whom these things are spoken pertains to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. He says, we're talking here about a different tribe than Levi. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. So Christ was a Jew, not a Levite. And therefore... If it is to be given again to the Melchizedek priesthood, it has to be taken away from the Levitical priesthood. So the Levitical priesthood is not now authorized to take tithes anymore. Now, what priesthood did Christ establish? He established, or the Father established him as the high priest, 
And he then established a New Testament ministry or servant uh, class to take care of the spiritual needs of the people. So what he's saying here is that it is changed from Levi to Judah and to the spiritual Jew, the church, rather than (coughs) to the blood physical Levites. And, And it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there arises another priest. So he says this is the same line, Melchizedek or Christ, that the change then comes to and away from Levite, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then he shows that a better hope is given under Christ today than we had under uh, the physical relationship of God with Israel. So, bottom line, Hebrews 7 changes the administration of what we just read about in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, doesn't it not? The principles are the same. The law of tithing has not been done away, but it has been changed in terms of who would care for it, who would take care of it. So if we find ourselves in a situation that is different in the land or within our gates, we apply the principles to the New Testament setting, if you will. Now let's look at two or three scriptures here along those lines to see how Paul indeed administered to the church what he just said here in Deuteronomy, I mean in Hebrews 7. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 9. Now, he approaches this several times, and it's something that is just to show that there's been something different done. 1 Corinthians 9, and here I want uh, about verse 13, I think it was. Do you not know that they which minister or serve about holy things live of the things of the temple, or those things that come into the temple or to the church, And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar, that they benefit from those things that come in. Even so, has the Eternal ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. So those things which come in uh, now come to the New Testament ministry under the order of Melchizedek as opposed to Uh, the Levitical priesthood. So Paul described that and said there's a change in it in Hebrews 7. And here he shows that not the Levite, but the ministry, the servants of the people on a spiritual basis, were the ones who were to partake of that. There are other scriptures that show this. I want to go to 1 Timothy 5. Let's pick up one more anyway. 1 Timothy 5.
Let's go down to verse 17, and then we'll, we'll backtrack a little bit here since we're already on this part of it. <clears throat> First Timothy 5.17, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, so there was a pay scale given. Those who served the best were to be paid the most, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. So, you don't give them a gold star. This is speaking, this whole context down here of financial remuneration. And it was to go to the elders that rule well, especially those who are laboring in the word and in doctrine. So, they were to be taken care of and live of the gospel, as he again said in 1 Corinthians 9. So, we see here that they were not administering things exactly as Leviticus and Deuteronomy lay out. So, let's see if we can apply the principle now to the New Testament church in terms of third tithe specifically. What is within our gates today? Well, we have a place here where there are multiple families living, about 27 heads of household, I think. And we have a fence around it, and we got gates out here. So, our purview, essentially, is what is within our gates, plus people who are not living here in the land, or on the land, but also are scattered around the country who are part of our spiritual family. So, what was Israel is now spiritual Israel. What was the Levitical ministry is now the Melchizedek, or the ministry of Christ in the New Testament church. So, they were to take care of essentially their own, weren't they? Not the neighboring acreage, but within their gates. So, I think that principle can be applied so it's within the church, essentially. Not outside uh, to relatives that may be scattered all over but within spiritual Israel as opposed just to physical, and more specifically, within our gates. Now, let's go back a few verses. He's talking about women being brought into the service. Uh, Paul and some of the ministers apparently had some of the women uh, traveling as part of the entourage as they went from place to place, preaching the gospel, and he he shows that they had to be at least 60 years old and the husband of one wife and so on. They had to qualify for that. If they were younger, he goes through and shows that they were to, it'd be better off if they married and raised families, and so on. So he says then, uh, for them to do that, in verse 14, and some had already turned to Satan uh, and the worldly way of life. But notice verse 16, if any man or woman that believe, so this uh, limits it to within the church, believers, not people outside. If anybody that believes have widows, let them relieve them and let not the church be charged that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. Now, what he's talking about here is a third tithe function. And he says, if someone have a widow in their family, 
that they are to take care of them, I would say essentially with third tithe because it's a category of a widow. He could have also included orphans and the stranger and so on, uh, as Leviticus does. But he's talking here about the women in particular. But notice he says that the church be not charged. So, if someone who is a believer has a widow in their family, I'd say immediate family is probably what he's referring to here, your mother or whatever, who is in need, then that believer, that member, is to take care of his own first, that the church be not charged. Well, that would seem to indicate that the church was administering at that time to the widows, which would be the widow's tithe or the third tithe. So, I do believe that between Hebrews 7 and Paul himself stating what he did in 1 Corinthians and Timothy here about the ministers living of the gospel and so on, he also included third tithe because the church was being charged. So, basically what it's saying is, that under the Levitical priesthood, it was done a certain way. And when Frank recommended this, I thought, well, let's get back to the original as best we can. And I did not consider these New Testament scriptures, which show the change in the priesthood. And also, I read a few, there are plenty more that we could go to, which show how they were using tithes differently than they were in the Old Testament. It was administered differently. We could go to 1 Corinthians 12, maybe as be a good place to go, just thinking about that. For one more. Now, he's talking here in this chapter, 1 Corinthians 12, about spiritual gifts and that they can be given to different people in different ways at different times, and no one all has the same gifts, that different ones are given to different people. So he says down in verse 4, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. God's Spirit is the one that gives spiritual gifts, and there's a diversity in how they're given, but it's all coming from God. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. Paul is writing this, and he had explained in Hebrews 7 that the administration of tithing had changed. And there are diversities of operations, but is the same God which works all in all. So the law is still there. The law is still to be kept. But depending upon the different circumstances, administration or operation or the use thereof can change as long as the principles are kept the same. So he said it changed from the Levites to Christ And Christ gave that authority to the ministry. And Paul clearly shows in many places, as do others, that that change was accepted of God and included in Scripture. So, what I'm thinking at this point is that because of the confusion we've had in administration and people not knowing what to do, how to do, where to do, or who with, that perhaps we should set aside a savings account or a separate account entirely from community funds or from church funds to keep for third tithe specifically. And then it can be administered within our gates the same way, the gate being the spiritual, the church, that gateway is opposed 
to an acreage of land specifically. Now, we apply uh, perhaps a little in both ways in that we do have a piece of land with quite a few people living on it, uh, but we also qualify under the New Testament priesthood of Melchizedek in the New Testament ministry as changed in the New Testament. So, that the church be not charged shows that there was some administration to the widows that was overseen by the church. So, in retrospect, <clears throat> I don't think worldwide was out of line in the type of administration that was going on. It was in misuse and abuse that the problem lay. There is New Testament authority for doing it the way they did it. But be sure that it is balanced properly and that the widow and the orphan and the stranger are well taken care of and that the Levite does not get more than they. Uh, and I would say that essentially, uh, God talks about the widow and the orphan a great deal. We need to be sure the widows and the orphans are well taken care of. Uh, Maybe not an opulent life, because there simply isn't that much money. I mean, we're a small group. Once in a while somebody says, well, Daryl's getting rich off this. They just can't do the math. <laughs> you know, count up the amount of Social Security recipients within this group, here and across the country, and uh, most of them do not pay first tithe, because they paid tithe on the gross throughout their lives, and therefore, they've already tithed on that Social Security as it comes to them. So, on Social Security, there's not much tithe. Then count up the ones who are working and count up off time from their work and this and that. And if you start putting a pencil to it, there ain't that much money, really. And I have tried very, very hard to be sure that what money comes in and tithes and offerings is utilized for what God determined it should be. And much of the money that comes in, uh, church money, not community money, goes right back into you, goes right back into this place. Because we did not put enough money in the community uh, to take care of a lot of needs. It's just not there. Uh, we barely pay the land payment, which is what our monthly lease is earmarked for. Uh, out of that, and there's very little left over. <clears throat> and then that's 75, and then the 25 we add for trash hauling and so on is there as well, and that's where it goes. So the community does not do these things itself. If you see buildings or road improvement or whatever around here, it's generally coming out of tithes and offerings. That's the way it's being done. And if I've helped through the church fund a few here and there who needed assistance, and maybe they were in the category of a widow or an orphan, it came out of church funds because the church didn't have any third tithe to give them. The, the, the administration, that we, the way we were working, it did not allow for that. So I think Frank had a good idea, and, and I endorsed it because I'd seen the abuses and the misuses in Worldwide. But at the same time, now looking at the confusion we've had and the frustration of what do I do with this and how do I do it, I think, see, every family within the gates of that acreage and that 
larger family in Israel, every family did not thereby keep it themselves, but whoever was the patriarch of the land, maybe the grandfather, the great-grandfather, whoever was running things at that time in that family, administered it and made sure it went where it needed to go. Otherwise, they would have had the same confusion that we have had here. So, I think we need to alleviate that, and we need to turn it in with our tithes, and then have a separate account for it. It needs to be clearly marked, third tithe, so we know exactly what to do with it. Now, if some uh, are totally opposed to that, and it would bother them based on what we've done in the past, uh, I'm not saying it has to be done that way. But I think for the most part, considering what I've had to deal and what you've had to deal with over these years, we can see that the system is not working right. And nobody knows who has what need. And uh, we need to be able to, if somebody has not enough to take care of their needs, be sure they do get enough. And not just sort of willy-nilly, well, where can I give this? Well, I'll give it to you and then I'll give it to that one and... What if everybody's giving it the same one? There's, there's just no control whatever or no doling it out so that everything is fair. So I think we should change that and turn it in and then we can determine better how to use it. And I think the scriptures we read in the New Testament show a modification because the New Testament church was different than the Old Testament land laws And Paul very clearly recognized that in Hebrews and in these other scriptures in how it was being administered. So the rule, the law, is still there. But it is a change in the law or a change in the operation or the administration thereof that the Bible does give authority to do. So we keep the law, we just administer it a little differently based on our circumstance and how everybody is going to be taken care of properly instead of just sort of whatever, as it has been these last few years. So, we tried that, and I've seen that it creates confusion and inequity, and therefore I think it ought to be changed so it can be more equitable and fair in the way it's taken care of, and then it will lessen your confusion as well. Now, if the church administers that, We'll try to do it equitably, and we'll make sure the ministry doesn't get much of it. But, you know, you have a couple of elders here that might have needs now and then. Nelson might need all his teeth pulled and might not have the money to do it. I don't know. He's already got that done. Uh, But, you know, there are times when those things come up, and if there's a fund there, then the Levite uh, should be able to have his taken care of like the widow does or like the orphan does. So, let's make that change. Uh, I think we have every authority to do it. I was not considering these when I said, let's do it this way. But what I was doing was trying to make sure that the inequities under worldwide were not repeated. And I think you here know me well enough that I have tried to be very careful to turn it back to you rather than it going to me or to, well, we don't have many ministers But through the years, uh, many meals were provided at the feast with no cost to you. Uh, Some cases Marlon, some cases other women helped her. Did the whole meal. 
and there was no charge. But we have tried to turn it around where the ministry is here to serve you rather than take from you and live opulently. Not that there's enough here to do that anyway, but there was a trend in the church that I think was decidedly wrong. So we have tried our best to turn things back to you and let you receive benefit from the church instead of you always just paying for everything. Now, Marla's not been able to do it lately and, and because of health and so on, uh, but we were still able to provide a meal at this feast for $10 that included very fine meat, wonderful side dishes, and the wine, the drinks, and everything, and then had some left over for another potluck. And it only cost 10 bucks, and you can't buy a decent hamburger for that anymore. But then I heard one comment that somebody had even complained about having to pay $10. And I thought, man, how much of a welfare society have we created here by trying to plow back to you and do things for you, and then first thing you know, you expect everything done for you. Now, I don't think that's a widespread attitude, but... It's easy for us to get that way. Uh, and, and, we, and that should not be either. We should do all we can to try to take care of the needs of people and to be generous back toward those. Uh, and I've tried to do that, but then we need to be very careful not to get into a welfare mentality where we expect everything to be done for us. Because many times, you may not have even known it, we probably should have assessed everyone for something that needed to be done. But instead of doing that, I've just said the church will pay for that. We'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. And that's the way I want to continue to operate when there is enough money to do that. So I've tried to keep from assessing you anything other than what we had to have. And a lot of people think, well, that 4500 bucks on the land. Well, you know what that was for? Roads, and electricity, and water, and phone service, and septic systems. 4500 bucks. You can't go to a private contractor and have a septic system put in for that kind of money. Septic alone, you can't do it. They're charging seven, eight grand now. So, uh, we kept it at the time we started this at the absolute bare minimum to get our services and nobody got any of that money. It went right into this land. So if anybody has an attitude, they need to get out their pencil and figure $26,000 just to have the power poles and transformers put in, and a few other costs, including what it would cost them if they bought a piece of land to put a septic in. And once you start figuring all that out, you'll figure out just how rich I got. I put more of my money, personal money, that I had when I got here into this place than anyone else has, including Andy Benedetto and anyone else who was very generous. Now, I don't like to brag about those things and talk about those things, but if we're changing something here where the church will administer it, I want you to know and know that you know that this hasn't been a piggy bank for me. You're getting the benefit. And many of your tithes that you earn and turn into God come right back to you in the forms of goods and services uh, for you.
And I intend to keep it that way. So, let's understand. Anyway, I guess that's about all I had to say. It's probably more than I needed to say, but uh, let's go ahead and stop for now. Uh, Again, I'm not trying to brag. I'm just stating the facts as they are. I know people get a little warped here and there once in a while. Not very many, not very often. But uh, if you imagine certain things, they're not always so. Please do the math. Please find out. There's no sense in carrying a bad attitude if you don't really have the facts. Now, if you get the facts, and I'm running off to Reno or Las Vegas for gambling and girlies in my jet, uh, then you've got a reason to complain. Uh, And you might have other reasons to complain. I'm just saying that's kind of the way some things went. And even the second tithe at the feast. You know, the minister stayed in the nicest motels and had a wet bar and fancy meals, and the widow was staying in the Roach Motel with with, the... cold running water and roaches, and barely getting by eating. That was abominable. And it's one of the things that God talks about in Malachi and in Ezekiel 34, Jeremiah 23, and other scriptures. So we're doing all we can to prevent that kind of culture again. And I have to answer to God, brethren. So, and I get double the judgment. He's twice as hard on me as he is on you. That's just the way it is. That's what he says. So I have to live under that and try to serve you as best I can, realizing how I serve you is how I'm going to be judged. So uh, I try not to cut myself a lot of slack on that because I know I have to stand before Christ. And you can judge me as harshly as you wish, I guess that's your business, but get the facts before you have attitudes. And if you have attitudes, then go to God and get over them. Or come to me if you think I'm doing wrong, and we'll talk about it. So let's try to do things the best we can. And I think this change will help get rid of the confusion that you and I have both suffered with in trying to figure out what to do with third tithe over these last several years. So I think it was a little narrow of view that that Frank took and I adopted because of past abuse in the church. But I do believe that the New Testament modifies it and gives us a certain amount of leeway in operation and, and, and administration.